Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Alina, unsurprisingly, is excited today. She's always excited. Alina, who have you got for us? I've gone and done it and uh, found World War II. I can all hear you saying, not another World War II. But listen, we're plugging a gap here. We are going to be talking about Ireland in the Second World War. And this is a subject I'm really excited to learn more about. So with us today, we've got Joseph Quinn, who's a Second World War Research Associate at the National Archives. He worked on Ireland in the Second World War and Irish Volunteers, and he's a former lecturer of history at the University of Dublin. Hi, Joseph. How are you? I'm good, Alina. How are you doing yourself? Yeah, good. I am not... It's been a year. The last time I saw you was nearly a year mm-hmm. ago. Exactly. Um, but listen, you're here to tell us about Ireland. I'm so excited to learn something because nobody really talks about Ireland in the Second World War. Well, not from any of my research. It's mad, isn't it? I don't think I've ever seen anything specifically focusing on Ireland in World War Two. So tell us about Ireland and the outbreak. Well, what happens in Ireland, Ireland sort of kind of preempts uh, the, the advent of war. Uh, uh, it's obvious to many across the world, uh, to many nations, to many peoples, that a war is coming. I mean, nobody's blind to this prospect in the 1930s. And uh, the person, actually, who perceived this most keenly was arguably um, somebody who a lot of people later joked was the blindest of all Irish people. It was uh, none other than Eamon de Valera himself, who actually did genuinely have eyesight problems going into the Second World War. Um, but he was very well connected with the League of Nations. He was a big League of Nations man. And he was a big believer in the international world order as it was constructed after the First World War. But what he started to see, almost as soon as he took power in the early 1930s, he took power in 1932, Hitler came to power in 1933. And he started to see the destabilization of the international world order. And the international world order was something that de Valera, Eamon de Valera, believed in very strongly. Um, He had been a a member of that generation of Irish nationalists that had fought in the independence struggle. He'd been a political leader of that independence movement. Um, He had been the de facto president of Ireland uh, prior to formal Irish independence. He demurred from the majority line because he opposed the Treaty of 1921 and became an anti-treaty leader. At that kind of when his side lost the Civil War, he was kind of on the losing side of history there, but he ended up coming back into power 
and in the 1930s he took power um, from the pro-treaty uh, party that were in power um, in the 1920s and early 30s. And as soon as he comes to power, he starts to see the rise of Hitler in Germany. He sees Hitler come to power and he sees the destabilization of the international world order as it's constructed post-World uh, War One. Now he, Davalera was a big believer in the international world order because the League of Nations and the world order as it was constructed post-World War I uh, was one that favoured small nations and the rights of small nations, which is something that a lot of Irish nationalists um, felt very strongly about for obvious reasons. So when he starts to see the dismantlement of all the old regulations and rearmament and the flagrant, bouting, uh, the flagrant flouting of, uh, of League of Nations regulations um, and, and like, I mean, the Italian invasion of Abyssinia and um, the Czechoslovakian crisis, uh, he starts to realise that in this new and hostile environment, Ireland needs to look to their own defences, they need to look towards their own borders, their own safety, and they need to prepare for the eventuality of war. And one thing he decides very early on is that if he can help it, he will keep his nation out of the war by any means necessary. And a lot of what he does in the 1930s is preparing the nation for war, recalibrating it economically, uh, redefining things constitutionally so he distances distances uh, Southern Ireland from Britain and really um, just putting Ireland on a footing where when war breaks out we can actually declare neutrality and be safely neutral even though we are we are actually still a member of the British Commonwealth of Nations. We're the only one that does declare neutrality in, 19, in 1939. I've got a question. Does, um, does anybody in Ireland at this point want to support Britain? Lots of people. In fact, De Valera, um, I think it was De Valera, or so, somebody who was very close to De Valera, or, um, if I recall correctly, I'm sorry, I came across this quotation very recently. It was said that two-thirds of the population of Ireland would have been, uh, would have classified themselves as pro-British. There was a minority of people in the South who were very similar to the majority of Unionists in the North. They were they were very they had a lot of english heritage they were the descendants of english settlers in ireland they were anglicans they were known as southern irish um, or former loyalist protestants and uh, they were very very much pro-british and there was a time where they sang god save the king in churches and they culturally they were very akin to their uh, english brethren in britain and they felt very strongly about um britain in, in in this coming war and that we should do all we can to support Britain in the war. But curiously, they also, they, m many of them actually supported the Irish policy of neutrality. And there was a particular reason for this. They felt that neutrality was the best course for Ireland to adopt. Now, if they say it, um, it's, quite, it it's quite unusual, really. Um, the policy of neutrality actually does seem to attract uh, support from the majority of the country. And then this crosses the border, comes from one, one extreme, which is former Unionists, former Loyalists who have sons actually serving in the British Army, to uh, left-wing uh, fanatical IRA Republicans who have um, had dreams of a united Ireland and 
who utterly detest Britain. Um, it actually, the policy of neutrality unifies all these various different factions right across Irish society. And that's why um, when we talk about why we're neutral, um, de Valera sums it up very well. The reason we're neutral is because de Valera knows, most people know, that when if war breaks out, that uh, most Irish people are going to choose one side or another. Um, but to answer your question, in short, the country was majoritively pro-British, or at the very least sympathetic to Britain, but preferred to stay out of the war. And there was a minority that would have had sympathies towards Germany, mainly because of Ireland's revolutionary past and the fact that Germany was seen as an ally of um, Irish Republican nationalists during the Irish Revolution in 1916. So while the war in the West is progressing earlier on, what's happening in Ireland? In June 1940, um, Ireland, uh, one of the things I have to tell you is that um, the Prime Minister up until May 1940, as you know, was the Chamberlain, and Churchill ends up... uh, uh, taking uh, power from Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain is still, he becomes the uh, Lord President of the Privy Council. So he still technically has power. He's sort of um, he's sort of a benevolent overseer, really, while Churchill is Prime Minister. And he's, he's, still, he's still really in power until he dies. And, and he has to be consulted by Churchill in all these major decisions. And one of the things that Churchill has to do on occasion is he has to kowtow to Neville Chamberlain and take on board his suggestions. And one thing uh, Chamberlain suggests is that we should offer uh, unity to the Irish in return for their entry into the war. And this is a scheme that Neville, Neville Chamberlain has considered before. Uh, Neville Chamberlain is um, he's celebrated in Irish history as a figure who tried to do a lot for Anglo-Irish relations and um, a man who de Valera seriously respects. He has huge regard for Chamberlain, one, because Chamberlain was came across quite reasonable to the Irish delegations that were sent across to London and he was willing to be a conciliator and willing to make concessions towards the Irish that they simply would not have been able to prize out of any other British leader. Um, but Chamberlain also, de Valera respects Chamberlain because he, he sees him as a peacemaker and somebody who tries to uphold the international world order and tries to avoid war uh, by any means necessary and try and secure peace. Um, he, 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 so Chamberlain tries to basically reopen an old channel that he had used in 1938 when he had made an agreement with de Valera handing over the ports. He tries to reach de Valera through uh, one of his associates, Malcolm MacDonald, the Minister for Health. And MacDonald goes over uh, to Dublin in June 1940 and he meets de Valera and he tries to persuade de Valera that if they join the war, they will be protected by Britain. Uh, British uh, Royal Navy vessels will be in Irish ports. Uh, British soldiers will be on standby in case any um, German invasion happens of Irish territory. And that also they assure de Valera that there will, you know, that they will guarantee a united Ireland. They will establish the basis for unity of the two jurisdictions. And de Valera, de Valera is both at once he's suspicious of the offer, but at the same time he, this is a dream that he wants to see realised. It's the last great step that Irish nationalists. Uh, desire to take the last the, the last task that needs to be accomplished. I mean, so to interrupt, I'd be completely suspicious at this point because yeah. you know, like you just said, it is this dream that they've always wanted. 
Yes. What if it all goes it wrong? Is. It, yeah, absolutely. Well, the, De Valera understands that from the very beginning. The one thing that makes him immediately suspicious is, what about Lord Craig Avon? What about J J otherwise known as James Craig, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland and uh, the Unionist government, the Unionist establishment in Northern Ireland? Have you not consulted with them? And actually, this is one of the this is something that fascinates me about uh, De Valera's um, ultimate consideration and subsequent rejection of the offer. Um, it's 80 years ago on Saturday, actually, that um, that De Valera uh, rejects this offer, um, formally rejects this, office, uh, this offer in a formal letter to Chamberlain. And he says one of the reasons that he cites for rejecting the offer, there are many very important reasons, but one of them, is that this is this offer has been made without any pre-consultation with the government of Northern Ireland, with Lord any references Lord Craig Avon in the letter. You haven't consulted with them, and this is when we look at the Good Friday Agreement um, uh, of 1998 and the constitutional changes that were made by the Irish government uh, as their act of goodwill for the Northern Ireland peace process. One of them is repudiating any territorial claim over Northern Ireland. And we could possibly link that gesture of goodwill for the peace process back to the idea that De Valera hit upon, which is basically if you're offering immunity to, to the South, to um, Southern Ireland, offering immunity with the North, the consent principle is important. So De Valera understands that any offer of unity has to be entirely contingent upon the consent of, the, of Northern Ireland's unionist community, which um, do not talk to us. Uh, there's a Cold War ongoing between North and South, and uh, it's, for, it's for a very clear reason. Uh, Northern Ireland is a sectarian, majoritarian Protestant state. It's known as a Protestant state for a Protestant people. And likewise, Southern Ireland is a majority Catholic state, considered likewise a Catholic state for a Catholic people. And there simply is no direct interaction between the two governments and they don't really recognize one another. So this is the problem with trying to achieve unity in this kind of environment. There's an irony, isn't there, in the term offer of unity, um, because it's not. It's not, no, no. It's in legal terms, and I, I, we're both, we both know Joshua Levine, and uh, Joshua Levine would agree with me when I refer to this as an invitation to treat. That's an old term from our days learning contract law, uh, it's a, there's a difference between an offer and an invitation to treat. An invitation to treat is like, I mean, the first step towards, as you know, making an offer. And that's what this was in purely legal terms. And it, it wasn't really an offer at all. It was, it was the promise to act upon a sort of an initiative to m make a first step towards unity. I mean, it, 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 the, the idea that is presented before De Valera uh, is to uh, essentially establish the basis for unification, but not actual unification itself. But in order for that to happen, we have to come into the board. The, 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 the consideration that the Irish government has to make towards achieving this is to actually enter the war on Britain's side. That means an abandonment of neutrality. And that means possibly risking, and this is what de Valera was afraid of, a reoccurrence of an Irish civil war. And that was one major thing that De Valera was very anxious to avoid, a, a reoccurrence of um, civil strife or civil war in Ireland, which he, and I don't think he was wrong. A lot of Irish historians feel that he was actually right in this regard. Um, 
uh, entry into the Second World War on any side would have possibly triggered one faction or another into some form of insurrection. And uh, that was just something that uh, De Valera was very, very keen to make sure that did not happen under any circumstances. So it's as much about internal security within the Irish state as it is about fears of external aggression. Was anybody ready to accept it? Well, there were hardliners within. De Valera is very much, he's always referred to, he's referred to by two names, Dev and the Chief, basically. And he was always the chief of the Irish Republican Nationalist sort of faction of society, personified by the Fianna Fáil party. And De Valera very much was able to command uh, absolute loyalty and respect among all his party colleagues and all his subordinates. But there were hardliners within his government, people who were of a much harsher line than himself, uh, that he had to appease. One of them was Frank Aiken. Frank Aiken was a Northern Irish Catholic. I think he was from, I think he was from County, I think he was from County Armagh. And uh, Frank Aiken was one particular individual. He was a former uh, IRA commander from the North who would have been absolutely opposed to the principle of unity unless it was offered unequivocally without any expectations on our side. In other words, if, we, if, if they're serious about uh, presenting unity, putting it on the table, uh, then uh, we have to have, you know, sort of the ability to, you know, sort of achieve unity first before we even consider possibly entering the war on Britain's side. And it's through Aiken, and also he's supported by um, a future Prime Minister of Ireland, De Valera's uh, political successor, Sean Lamas, who's a young up-and-coming star within uh, the top ranks of the Fianna Fáil party. Sean Lamas is Minister of Supplies, and he also backs Frank Aiken up, and he says, yes, absolutely, we can't countenance an offer like this at all from the British, unless, of course, they're prepared to facilitate a form of unification of the two jurisdictions and then the declaration of neutrality of both those jurisdictions. In other words, what it means is basically hand over the North into some kind of arrangement of unification and essentially then all of us would become neutral and then we can consider whether we can enter the war on your side. And that's, that's, a, deal, that's a deal breaker from, from a British point of view. They can't, they can't go for that. I mean, there's got to be something positive that comes out of this. Yes, there is. There is. It seems all negative and it seems like an impasse, but there is something very positive. Um, before this offer is even made, one of the things uh, one of the things that I came across, which I thought was absolutely lovely, was a letter um, from um, from uh, Devil Bear to Chamberlain. And it's not connected with any negotiations or back channel deals or anything like that. It's actually more connected with um, one of the, one of the first things that happens before the offer is made is that. Um, they start talking to one another, the British and Irish government start talking to one another about joint defence planning. And Irish officers um, accompanying an Irish delegation over to London, to Downing Street, uh, meet um, lower down counterparts uh, from Whitehall and some British officers, including one particular British officer, and they have discussions around joint defence. And what happens is that this uh, delegation, this group, they bring... Uh, the British officer with them and they bring him back to Ireland and they bring him to Dublin, they bring him to government buildings, to an underground room underneath uh, Leinster House and they um, they have a discussion with the Chief of Staff of the Irish Army about joint defence planning and what's going to happen and they, they work out 
um, essentially the, the bones of a plan where if Ireland are attacked from the south by German forces, by Nazi German forces, rather like what had happened in the invasion of Norway, then British forces based in Northern Ireland will immediately intervene. Royal Marines from Milford Haven will cross the Irish Sea at very quick notice and land in the east. And three squadrons uh, of Royal Air Force fighters will come immediately over the Irish Sea. But the problem is that this cannot happen until the Irish government invite the British in. Um, and, you know, you, you also have uh, exchanges of correspondence uh, between de Valera and Chamberlain, which are far more cordial and not uh, connected with these pla this planning. It's more to do with, it's de Valera communicating to Chamberlain and saying to him, this is a terrible situation and I feel so desperately sorry for you and nobody's tried harder than you and um, now that you're about to resign, I just want to say to you, now nobody's tried harder than you to improve Anglo-Irish relations and to uh, ensure peace in our time. And I just want to say, I just want to salute you and pay tribute to you for everything that you've done for the relationship between our two countries. And he concludes the letter by saying, P.S. I saw the news that uh, Holland, or the Netherlands, fell to Nazi forces. And de Valera refers to that news, which had just come in um, around the time that Chamberlain was about to step down. Uh, he regarded it, uh, he, part of, he refers to it as disquieting news. So de Valera is indicating very clearly, I think, his sympathies towards the British government and towards, to a certain extent, the Allied cause insofar as he can. Um, and he's aware that uh, it's a very desperate situation and it's very clear that he wants the Allies to prevail in his own way. But it's about as far as he can go um, within the constraints of the situation in Ireland. Um, he can't really offer anything further uh, than just tacit cooperation in terms of joint defence planning. Um, but after, after the offer of unity, one of the very interesting things that happens is that the basis for an exchange of information, intelligence, weather reports, um, various different uh, forms of like very important help, you know, cooperation, allowing allied planes, British planes to fly over Irish territory when we turn a blind eye, and crucially, permitting a corridor, a flight corridor across Irish territory from Loch Foyle across County Donegal to the Atlantic, uh, so the, that flying boats can engage in anti-submarine patrols. This is all um, developments that occur post the offer of unity and develop into tangible uh, areas of cooperation. So they're basically communicating with each other, which is great. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And um, the, uh, in the lead up to D-Day, uh, one of the things, one of the most important areas like they, was, was the sharing of uh, weather reports because most weather that hits the United Kingdom, with perhaps the exception of the North Scotland and areas like that, most weather invariably ends up crossing uh, Ireland's um, you know, um, shores first. Um, we've always been the buffer. We've always taken all the crappy weather before it hits. Before it's <laughs> the luck of the, the, luck of the Irish. <laughs> you, so, you still yeah. check it now. You kind of like, what's the weather like? Oh, it's raining yeah, yeah, over yeah, Ireland. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. we'll be here in a couple of hours. We've got a few moments to drink that drink in the garden and get back inside. Exactly, exactly. Like if you're in places like Galway, um, I lived in Galway for four years, or uh, in Limerick. Um, places like that, it get, they get absolutely sodden wet um, most days of the year. I mean, and it really is like very heavy downpours and very frequent. So there's quite a lot of precipitation in these parts. Um, but also that's one of the reasons why basing weather stations along the West Coast, particularly in Connacht and areas like that, is very important because you could detect incoming um, weather fronts and weather patterns. And... Um, uh, a lady who I'm not too sure if she's still alive, but she was alive last year for the uh, around the time of the D-Day anniversary. Her name was Maureen Sweeney, and she was a 21-year-old postmistress based in a weather station at Blacksod Point in County Mayo. And Maureen Sweeney uh, gets up early that morning, and she one of her jobs as the postmistress is she has to record the weather at the weather station adjacent to her building. And she goes up, to, I think it's at a lighthouse or something, and she takes the weather readings using the various different instruments and the barometers provided. And she's very new to the job. And she double-checks her findings, and she calls a weather station further down the coast. And she's woken the, the postmaster up, and he says, what do you want, Maureen? And she says, I just wanted to check, what, what direction do you have you for, have you for the wind what direction is the wind blowing according to your readings and he said ah it's, it's west 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 and he just hangs up and goes back to bed and she record makes the notes she records the temperatures and the and the fluctuation and she, she notes a, a, a sudden change in the weather and she she basically phones it in and it uh, goes back to the irish meteorological service who then later transfer that information um Across to the UK to the to the UK weather services, and that weather report, which is first recorded by Maureen Sweeney, ends up on the desk of um, I think his name is Group Captain Stagg, just trying James Stagg, who is uh, General Eisenhower's chief meteorological officer and the uh, basically the weatherman for D-Day. And uh, Stagg has just predicted an incoming you know storm, one of the worst storms to hit the Channel at this time of year in living memory and D-Day has been delayed as a result of the storm. And Maureen Sweeney's weather report gives Stagg the crucial data that he needs uh, to brief Eisenhower and tell him we're going to have a 24 hour to 36 hour window, a break in this rough weather, a very sudden break. 
which will allow us to get our airborne and seaborne forces across to Normandy. But it's a very brief window. And one of the advantages of this is the storm that will be passing off is so violent that the, uh, the German forces in Normandy, will the last thing they will expect is an incoming invasion. And um, on the basis of this briefing, which, I, which he gives to Eisenhower almost immediately as he receives the report, Eisenhower gives the order to go with Montgomery's um, um, approval as well. And D-Day is launched on in the early hours of uh, the 6th of June, 1940, sorry, 5th of June, it's launched. And in the early hours, uh, Allied forces land in Normandy. Love that. that all down all to Maureen. Yeah. Uh, that's all down to 21-year-old Maureen Sweeney. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. That is, that is actually a really nice story. Just, mm-hmm. it's so simplistic that one lady took a weather reading and then so suddenly you know, one of the biggest offences is launched in, in the whole, like, literally in the whole history. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's a, a remarkable story. Uh, what I like about it the most is that it, it also connects with a deeper Irish connection to the Normandy invasion. And this is the next point I wanted to make. Another area of cooperation between Britain and Ireland is the fact that um, the Irish government, and including de Valera, uh, permitted, knowingly permitted Irish people to leave the jurisdiction to enlist in the armed forces or to work in the British war industries. Now we had up to, in excess of half a million unemployed men, I'm not counting women, men, because there there were women immigrants as well, a lot of them, and they served in all branches of the armed forces, they served as nurses, they served in a variety of different roles, Um, but we had half a million unemployed men in Ireland in 1939 because of the fact, you know, that there's poor economic conditions already in the 30s, but then what little industries already exist are hit uh, by the restrictions and shipping, the U-boat war, and then eventually, it's not that we suffer a blockade as a result of our neutrality, but because uh, the British Merchant Navy are so hard up, in trying to get supplies across the Atlantic to feed the British public. Uh, Churchill decides to discontinue the supply shipments to Ireland because we rely, for 95% of our imports, we rely on British tonnage, basically um, merchant marine uh, tonnage that basically comes to Irish ports. And so uh, Churchill has to cut all of that. Not necessarily out of... It is kind of partially uh, begrudging, uh, but it also is as a measure of, you know, Britain feels they need to do this in order to survive because things are getting very tough in 1940 mm. and 41. And in fairness, you can see where they're coming from. Ireland aren't exactly helping, um, you know, by denying the use of the ports or whatever. Like, you know, these kind of arguments are coming to the surface. A lot of people in the Royal Navy, people like Nicholas Montserrat, the author of The Cruel Sea, writes about, you know, neutral Ireland in a very, very nasty, very kind of bitter way that whenever we sailed past the coast of neutral Ireland, we perceived this country that was basically almost like a quizzling state. That, that's kind of how he refers to it, you know, because of the fact that he feels that new, neutral Ireland aren't helping enough. And it's not actually true. Um, but um, the thing is that as a result of the unemployment that's caused because of the, these, these economic conditions, the collapse of the building industry, um, the knock-on effect of this 
is that Irish people have to leave Ireland in order to get employment. And there's lots of opportunities in Northern Ireland and in mainland Britain uh, for anybody who's looking from, you know, they can work in a coal mine, they can uh, work in, a, in an arms factory, they can work in uh, food processing plants, they can, they can join the London Metropolitan Police or any other police force. And they can, they can do that without necessarily having to join the armed forces. They can, um, they can actually work for two years without being liable to be called up. Um, and many Irish actually do get called up. And the vast majority, there's only one guy who really contests his call up and he takes it all the way to the King's Bench. And De Valera makes a big deal out of it that it's infringing his rights as an Irish national. But most people, when they are called up, they go. In fact, some people decide to volunteer even before their call up comes around. And um, some people do it for ideological purposes. But we don't know, to this day, we, we have no idea how many Irish actually join the armed forces. Well, you're right, you've beaten us to it. How many Irish people served? This is what I know, and this is, this is what we know so far. What, what, what we do know is that in the Northern Ireland recruiting area, 71,450, exactly that number, uh, enlisted from North and South. That's North and South, male and female. Okay, that's how many recruits are recorded throughout the course of the Second World War by British Army recruiting authorities. And that's in all three branches of the armed forces. With one curious exception, and you might be interested in this, um, for some reason, and I'm going to explain what this reason is, and it's absolutely <laughs> absurd. For some reason, they, they do not, they allow uh, Southern Irish women uh, to join the WAF. They allow Southern Irish women to join the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service. But they will not allow Southern Irish women to join the Reds, the, the Women's Royal Naval Service. Really? Uh, they, they're not, they allow Northern Irish women, but they will, in Northern Ireland, in Northern Ireland, they will not allow southern irish women to join the reds and it's and, and actually some southern irish women are so determined to join the navy that they will actually get on a ferry um, at, at, at uh, dunleary or dublin port and they will cross they'll get the mail boat and they'll cross over to britain and they'll get the train to london and they'll join the wrens at a london um you know royal naval uh, recruiting office in order to get into the Wrens. That's actually what they have to do if they really are determined to join the Royal Navy. And, but they Why? just cannot, they will not, they will not accept them um, into the Wrens in Northern Ireland. The reason they do not uh, accept them is because um, in, late, in, in the later years of the First World War, uh, this uh, Royal Navy commander of um, the base in what's Kingstown, what becomes Dunleary in South Dublin, he rules that it would be not advisable now that they're accepting women into the armed forces, they have, they're setting up women's branches of the armed forces from 1916, 17 onwards. It would not be advisable to allow Southern Irish women to enlist in the Royal Navy in the same way that they're joining the women's branch of the, uh, the British Army. And he says because it's likely that... and. and British naval intelligence seem to be of this opinion. It's likely that Southern Irish women um, could be a danger. They could pose a security risk to the Navy and to the, into the armed forces because they could be Irish nationalists. They could be Republicans, you know, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And there's a, they're worried about a risk of infiltration from Irish women within the Navy. And so they put in this bar 
an Irish woman joining the Royal Navy. And it all originates from this Royal Navy commander who was possibly Anglo-Irish, I think he was Anglo-Irish, who commanded a Royal Navy station in South Dublin. And it's utterly weird. And they continue it for some strange reason. They continue this into the Second World War. That's ridiculous. Apparently it's a Navy tradition. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, To get to the answer to your question, which I can't really provide a definitive answer on how many Irish were in uh, the British forces. Uh, General Sir Hubert de la Puerre Gough, an Anglo-Irish general himself, born in County Waterford, uh, who commanded the Fifth Army in the First World War. Um, he is, in the Second World War, he's the head of the Chelsea Home Guard. He's also the head of the Commonwealth Irish Association based in London. He leads a lobby group of Anglo-Irish officers, former unionists, and people people who basically served in the armed forces who you know, are kind of retired gentlemen now. Uh, he leads them in a sort of a lobby group campaign, and they kind of in the they kind of try and campaign for um, for Ireland. You know, sort of whenever Ireland seems to be getting bad press in the British media, whenever the British government are taking a hard line with the Irish government, uh, or where, wherever the Northern Ireland government are um, antagonising the South, or you know, sort of um, putting out bad propaganda against them. Uh, this lobby group swings into action in defence of Neutral Ireland and saying Neutral Ireland are doing a lot. And one of the things that interested Hubert Goff as the leader of this lobby group is how just exactly how many Irish were serving in the armed forces. Now, in 1941, he was referring to it as tens of thousands. And he wrote a letter to the Times, to the editor of the Times, adverting to this, to the fact that so many uh, Irish were in the armed forces. And he recommended the formation of an Irish brigade, which Churchill did. Within 10 days of the publication of his letter, Churchill actually um, um, had held a cabinet meeting where he brought this up. And uh, the 38 Irish Brigade came into existence in early 1942, all as a result of this. Um, and this was paying tribute to how many Irish were in the armed forces. They even considered forming a squadron from uh, Irish RAF aviators, which would, Churchill said, that man, Finucane, uh, referring to the Irish fighter ace, Brendan Paddy Finucane, um, who was the second greatest RAF air ace of all, all time. Um, he said he might be a good person to command the squadron if it's formed, but they decided not to form it in the end. And by the close of the war, um, around 1945-46, Hubert Goff writes another letter to the Times in which he says that according to information that I managed to procure from a contact in the War Office, um, in July 44, the War Office recorded 165,000 next-of-kin addresses in Southern Ireland. Not, this is excluding Northern Ireland. So th- this, is, this figure that Hubert Goff came up with, it's been off-quoted, but it's never been verified. But... A lot of people have done the number crunching uh, using various statistics such as the death rate, the rate of enlistment in the north and various different things. And we have to factor the, the we have to account for the fact that um, no uh, numbers or tallies were kept for Southern Irish recruits in mainland Britain, in Scotland, Wales, and um, in the London area and in other military recruiting districts. Only Northern Ireland it was the only place where they kept tallies of Irish North and South. Uh, because of this, the figures, that's why the figures are incomplete. But on the basis of um, essentially 
guesswork and estimations based on the death toll, the number of Irish who died in the Second World War was about 12,000. They've worked out that it was, it's possibly in excess of 200,000. In fact, it was always said during the Second World War that there were up to and perhaps in excess of a quarter of a million Irish in the British Armed Forces. Wow. This, is all stu- this is all stuff that would have to be verified through very intensive forensic work with the service records, uh, whenever the service records will be made available for digi- in digitized form for, for people to comb through and to, uh, to quantify and analyze. I think it's absolutely incredible that the Irish were allowed to join to fight in the Second World War alongside the British. Well, you say that, but the thing about it is there's nothing new in it. Um, it's, it's a continuation. It's, it, it's perhaps a departure in the sense that we are, you know, not only a neutral country, but an independent country. And we have our own armed forces. We have a, a regular army of 40,000 backed up by a, a reserve force numbering 160,000. You know, we have our own armed forces. We have an air corps. We're very small. We have a very, very small naval service. But we do have our own armed forces and we do have our own kind of military tradition running in tandem. And um, so that, that part of things might be considered unique or remarkable in the, set, in the context of the Second World War. It is a departure from the past. But in terms of where there's a continuity, there's nothing new about Irish people serving in British uniform. It's a long tradition that goes all the way back. It goes back really to the Middle Ages, really. There were, you know, sort of Irish contingents serving in British medieval armies. And in terms of formal, established Irish military tradition, you have Irish people serving in large numbers um, in the 16th, 17th century in British uniform. You have when the British army becomes a formal, you know, sort of institution um, in itself, but, you know, with the standing army, the creation of the standing army under William III. Um, you know, Irish regiments um, play a very big part in that. And even after the introduction of the penal laws, which also prohibits Catholic service in British uniform, they still recruit, very aggressively recruit, um, re- you know, dozens of regiments um, from Catholic menfolk in Ireland to fight in North America in the Seven Years' War, in the Revolutionary War. And the Napoleonic Wars are a particularly big example of the role that the Irish play. I mean, the vast majority of the army that Wellington used, Wellington himself an Irishman, the vast majority of his soldiers in the Peninsular War were Irishmen. And at at Waterloo, 40% of the British army that stood um, at Waterloo, including the Inniskillings of Quatrebad, that that was, they were all Irishmen. Um, And there's 20% of Nelson's Navy um, in the Napoleonic Wars were, were Irish too. So there's a tradition of uh, Irish service, a very strong and a very proud tradition of Irish service in British uniform, um, which goes back um, hundreds of years. And we can consider Irish service in the Second World War as part of that continuum. And um, indeed, um, you know, even today when we talk about Irish, the, the, the hundreds of Irish that serve in Britain's armed forces today, I mean, this is a, a tradition that continues right up into the present and I think it will continue for a long time to come. Thank you so much for joining us that was absolutely excellent and for me I think my favourite part of this 
was uh, De Valera and Chamberlain's relationship because it's something quite positive that you always hear about this negative thing with politics. But it's been a nice overview of uh, Second World War and Irish history. So you definitely have to come back and join us. I, so we can I will, I will. More. And maybe next time we can talk about the sparring that went on between De Valera and Churchill because I didn't discuss that at all. And that's a story, of, that's a story in itself. Really. We can do story. as much Irish history as you like because it's, it's something we are really lacking on this podcast. So thank you so much for joining us and filling out. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Join us tomorrow because the venerable Michael Scott, Alina was so excited, is talking to us all about Delphi. Great bit of ancient history for you. Don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.